but I was defending Jamel Hill, even though she had called Donald Trump a white supremacist. I think she's entitled to say that. I think we should all say exactly what we think, and we should argue about who's right. Hello, and welcome to a brand new edition of The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. Joining me this week is Clay Travis, the founder of sports and politics website OutKick, host of the Buck Sexton and Clay Travis show on radio, and a Fox News contributor. Two years ago, Clay sold the OutKick to Fox Corporation in a deal that has seen the website notch impressive growth. His turn to political commentary landed him the radio show, which replaced Rush Limbaugh's coveted time slot. It's also courted him some controversy, namely for his views on COVID that have frequently run afoul of fact checkers. Whatever you think of his political opinions or his college football analysis, Clay has become a major voice in the conservative and sports worlds. I called him up to discuss the success of OutKick, hosting Rush Limbaugh's old time slot, his controversial political views, the legacy of Trump after the January 6th riot, and what he makes of the 2024 presidential race. Clay Travis is the founder of OutKick, the host of the obscenely popular Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show on radio and a Fox News contributor. He is joining us now from Nashville. Clay, how are you doing? I'm great. How are y'all? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. I want to start with the success of OutKick. It's the sports and politics website that you founded in 2011. The site has had some really impressive growth over the last few years. It's recently been averaging about 9 million unique visitors per month, if I have my numbers correct. My first question, I want to step back a little bit. How did you get into this industry and how did you get where you are today? Well, I love that number. So 9 million. Comscore is actually not valuing us high enough. I think we've been as high as 20 million um, internally, yeah. our numbers. So uh, yeah, we're, we're doing well. Um, I started, so I went to law school um, and uh, I had what I would call is a quarter life crisis where uh, I, I sort of looked around in the law office and thought to myself, my goodness, this is what the next 40 years of my life is going to be like as a litigator. Billable and, hours. Not, yeah. <laughs> not a great thing to stare down. Most lawyers uh, have an escape hatch. You know, if you ask any lawyer, if there's any listening to us right now, what would you do if you didn't practice law? All of them have an answer. And for me, uh, I started writing online in 2004. Uh, in a entertaining sort of zany context for people like me who were lawyers sort of working at our desks all day long. It was still early enough in the internet era where a lot of people hadn't shifted from newspapers yet. That was still sort of an early, you know, 20 some odd years ago, basically, uh, when you could make that move and be able to develop an audience. So I started writing online with an audience of zero I dreamed of having a hundred, daydreamed of a thousand, you know, 10,000 people reading was sort of a, uh, a wild uh, aspiration. And uh, like I just said, we had 20 million um, in October, I think, at OutKick, according to internal OutKick numbers. And, uh, and, and you know, you start to, to, to look at it. So I would write, and then anybody who emailed me, I had a public email address, still do, by the way, uh, I would go on as a guest to talk about uh, whatever column I had put out there. Uh, and that led from writing to radio, which eventually led to TV. Hmm. What do you think the key to success is in digital media? I think you have to work at it every day. 
Um, and what I have found is there's a lot of people out there who can write one article. There's a lot of people who can do one podcast. There's a lot of people who can do one thing. Um, if I had gotten obsessed with the metrics of how many people were consuming my content, uh, I would have gotten discouraged long before I did. Um, and so I think you have to be out there every single day, grinding, putting forth the effort. Uh, it's a job. And, and I think a lot of people don't value the job aspect of it. I mean, I worked uh, 15, 16 hours a day um, and for over a decade. Uh, I'm disappointed sometimes when we hire people or I've seen people and they're like, well, this is an eight hour a week job uh, or sorry, an eight hour a day job. And yeah, you can do it that way. You're never going to be that successful. So um, I, I think you have to grind. You may love talking about sports or you may love writing about sports, but no matter how much you like any particular aspect, at some point the grind takes over and you have to be able to show up day after day and produce content. And um, I think a lot of people aren't willing to embrace the grind because they think, oh, if I were just able to do radio or if I were able to do TV or if I were able to write, that somehow that would be a lot less work than maybe what they do now. I don't think that's true. Uh, I, I practice the law. You have to work a lot as a lawyer. I didn't enjoy practicing law. I enjoy doing this, but I still have to work 15 or 16 hours a day at it. And I made no money for like a decade, basically, of building my audience, of working. I was still doing a ton of other jobs. So I think if you're contemplating, oh, I'm just going to flip the switch and go from X to Y, and suddenly everything's going to come together and you're going to be able to make a living and do really well, and you're only going to work eight hours a day, you're totally wrong. So I think people underrate the grind uh, that is required to be successful in any aspect of media. That's right. It's like, not only if you want to be a personality in media, even if you just want to be a, a journalist, like the media industry is incredibly unforgiving. And unless you're willing to really be a pervasive producer of content, whether it's, you know, anyone that you see having any sort of success on Twitter, which I think used to be a really big barometer of success of a, a reporter or a journalist, it's because they're posting constantly. Yeah. And if you're not giving the audience something regularly, I think the audience will tune out. And I think that's something that you've definitely done in, uh, done throughout your career. Yeah. And look, it wasn't some calculated decision. People say, you probably have heard this question or you may have asked this question before. How many hours a day do you prep, right? I do three hours of radio. I do an outkick show, uh, you know, inordinate amount of interviews or tweets or, you know, whatever, right? Um, if, the, if I could tell you a number, then it probably means I'm not prepping enough because right. the is all day long every day. If you talk to my wife and you said like, hey, how much time does Clay spend working? She would say he works all the time. Now I got three young kids. Uh, I, I try to be as present and involved in their lives as possible. I've been married for almost 20 years. There's a certain level of balance associated with that. When I finish this uh, interview, I'm going to go downstairs and uh, and go play horse with my 12-year-old in the backyard, hopefully not lose to him uh, because <laughs> B-H-O-R-S-E to nothing uh, last week, and I'm still recovering from Ooh. that, uh, which is a devastating blow for any That's dad. Tough. Yeah. There. Like, so, you know, when you realize you're going to be usurped in athleticism by your kids, but to have it happen when he's 12 is kind of a tough blow. He has 12 is early. Yeah. Yeah, 12 is early. And to lose H-O-R-S-E to nothing, we have a family horse belt. So I've got to try to reclaim that later today. 
Um, but I think, you know, the elements of balancing all of this. And, and then the other thing is you don't control when a story is really going to take off. And I think that's something a lot of people don't understand. Uh, you might be on vacation and then suddenly, boom, the biggest story of six months takes place. In fact, it feels like that always happens, right? Like you're right. like, well, get to this date. I'm going to dial out. I'm going to go vanish. I'm going to be at the beach. I'm not going to pay attention to anything. And then, you know, the story, which is the essence of what you do occurs. And basically, I think you have to strap in and go to work. I remember right after I launched OutKick, um, right before the season was about to start, uh, I told my wife, hey, we'll get away because college football and NFL season for people who do sports media is basically a bear, right? I mean, you start in September and you essentially go straight through to the Super Bowl. There's football season and there's non-football season. And then Texas A&M and Missouri joined the SEC. And I was out at Vegas, you know, trying to get away with my wife for a quick trip before we were going to be on the road. And I was going to be gone for much of the fall. And she was like, yeah, you got to cover this. Like, that's your job. So she is incredible in understanding. But there's a lot of people, I think, that would have said, well, I've got this Vegas vacation planned and I can't spend six hours or eight hours sitting in a uh, hotel room making telephone calls so I can write an article about what might happen with conference expansion. Well, you can and you will if you want to be successful in this business. And uh, I, I just think a lot of people underrate the amount of grind, the amount of work that's required to be super successful in any aspect of the media. How is OutKick making its money? Is it all digital advertising? Well, we have a subscription uh, VIP section. We uh -huh. have the uh, advertising component. We have uh, you know, different elements out there for events and everything else. You know, it's a Fox controlled business now. So back in the day, I sold every ad. I, I took every text message from advertisers. I made all the pitches. I went to all the meetings. So I understand the, uh, the ad based business. I'm going to New York tomorrow. I'll probably have some meetings with advertisers and whatnot to, to keep them happy. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's a Fox based driving force now. Uh, but, Certainly, if people are watching this and they want to hop on board the fastest growing uh, sports media brand in the uh, in the country, I'm sure our advertising team will give you some great packages. Uh, but <laughs> not, uh, that's not my responsibility anymore. It used to be, uh, but I I understand they're super uh, super pleased with how things are going there. So Fox Corp acquired Outkick 2021. That happened? that's right. Announced I believe in June of 2021 on uh, the earnings call. Lachlan Murdoch announced it. Right. What uh, what made you want to sell? Well, I had three options, um, you know, so I'm big on sports gambling for people who aren't familiar with me. And I did an FS1 show originally called Lock It In, later Fox Bet Live daily for four years where we talked about uh, sports and made gambling picks every day. Loved that experience. Prior to that, I had been all in on sports gambling for a long time. I love following the line, making picks, uh, being involved in the gambling aspect of the business. Um and so to me, there were three real options as sort of the sports gambling tide took off in the sports media universe. Uh, we could go the barstool route and start our own sports book uh, in partnership with a sports book. We could continue to ride out the affiliate model, which was incredibly lucrative. As every state comes on, you get paid based on every new subscriber who comes on board. Uh, or we could sell and partner with a bigger media entity that had a larger sports gambling strategy. And so as the owner of OutKick, I contemplated sig significantly 
all three of those uh, potential paths. And ultimately, we had a bunch of bidders uh, in the sports gambling space. I thought Fox as the partner made the most sense. And right. uh, and so, look, you can sit around. I still, you know, uh, I think you could make an argument for stay independent and ride out the affiliate model. You could make an argument for roll the dice and try to create a billion dollar brand through OutKick as a sports gambling standalone entity. Uh, and I think you can make the argument for uh, for what I did, uh, which was uh, which was sell and go uh, go in house at Fox. You have said before you wanted to to make a hundred million dollars. I believe was the uh, was the number, and you you sold OutKick for all cash, right? How much money did you make? <laughs> that's uh, that's in the NBA provision, but I am worth I a shot. <laughs> being to be comfortably a hundred millionaire. Okay. So, you know, it used to be when I would say that, people would be like, you're never going to have $100 million. You know, I'm to the point now where it's like, okay, you've got $100 million. What do you do now kind of going forward, um, which is a good spot to be in. Mm. Uh, and uh, and look, the stock market could be cut in half and my value could go down substantially. But, um, you know, I've got more money than I ever thought that I would have. I'm still relatively young. Um, you know, I've had to have those meetings where you're like, Okay, you know, you're going to be worth if you live to be 85, hundreds of millions of dollars. What are you going to do with your assets? I got three kids. Like, I never really anticipated I'd be having those meetings at 41, 42 years old. Uh, but, uh, but I have, uh, I've been in those meetings now trying to figure out uh, what to do. I think one of the things I find really interesting about your success and the success of Outkick is that there has always been this argument in sports and media, sports media, that coverage should be separate from politics. And it's sometimes, you know, I'd say mostly an argument you hear from conservatives and sometimes on Fox News. And it's one that lefty media folks like the the last team at Deadspin rejected. You definitely seem to land more with with the Deadspin guys than on the side of those who argue politics and sports should be should not mix. Do you see politics and sports as just an inherently linked topics? Well, I think they made it right. Um, So, you know, what are you going to ignore? Colin Kaepernick's protest and just pretend that it doesn't exist, for instance? Are you just going to pretend that the NBA's issues with China, uh, you know, when Daryl Morey sends out his tweet, just doesn't exist? I think that would require you to live sort of in a tunnel vision vacuum. So in many ways, or when a team makes a big deal about the fact that they won't go visit the White House when Donald Trump is the president, or when Donald Trump has an opinion on what NFL teams are doing or whatever those aspects may be, I think they sort of became inextricably intertwined through no conscious choice of people like me. Just like, are you going to talk about what everybody is talking about or not? My preference is that sports is like, I'm a kid of the eighties and the nineties. I don't remember Michael Jordan or Bo Jackson or uh, or any other King Griffey Jr., whatever, any other star athlete of that era, even into Tiger Woods, I don't remember them ever coming out and saying, hey, I believe X or Y. And as a result, you tended to focus on their individual excellence as athletes, right? And sports was sort of this common ground that brought everybody together, regardless of what your background was. Um, and then you add in, so then that changed. I think with the Trump, it felt to me very much like an association with Trump getting involved in in politics, but it was coming before him, right? He's a symptom of, as opposed to the cause of, uh, this intertwining, in my opinion. 
And then it led into COVID. I mean, like, what are you going to do? Like, there's literally no sports for March, April, May, and June, basically. And I'm doing a three-hour daily sports talk radio show. Uh, I mean, what else are you going to talk about other than are sports going to return? Can they return? All of those things. So, uh, you know, Deadspin is, is interesting because when I worked at Deadspin and the original iteration of Deadspin was actually, for people who remember it back in like 2004, sort of a zany, irreverent, fun place to escape what was oftentimes very serious and stultifying coverage of sports, right? And then it morphed over that, you know, 15-year process or whatever existed into a very self-serious place that that became sort of the uh, the finger wagging uh, of the uh, of the sports media, like how dare so and so say this or that. So the evolution of Deadspin is actually kind of fascinating to me. Um, but yes, I think it became uh, almost impossible not to address larger societal issues given where sports went. It was announced uh, a few years back that you and Buck Sexton took over Rush Limbaugh's show, and yeah. those those are you know big shoes to fill in the conservative media space. Given he was an arguably the king of conservative talk radio. Have you found that there's more heat covering politics than sports? No, <laughs> honestly, I haven't. I, and I mean, maybe that's coming from Nashville, but like if I pick Michigan or Ohio state to win a game, the other it, side, the death murder, threats, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, not kidding. I mean, I come from sec. So, I mean, it's a blood sport here. So if, if, you know, if you pick Alabama or Auburn or you pick Florida or Georgia or whatever it is, people are tribal about their sports teams like people are tribal now about their politics. So I actually think, um, you know, the most angry I've had people is not for, by and large, my political opinions. It's for picking a side in a contentious rivalry related game. So I, you know, I, I, I was in no way, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I have not found the, uh, and I'm talking about the people who are fans, right? Like the media itself, um, you know, it's just kind of noise. Uh, so we've gotten so big that fans are responding, um, in one way or another constantly to the opinions that are up at outkick. And I have found in my career that people are angrier about my sports opinions than they are about my political opinions. I'm. Uh, it's also interesting, you know, that the show is three hours long, and I'm always blown away whenever you hear that people like Sean Hannity, for instance, Fox News primetime host, uh, has been on the show before, and he's on the air four hours a day. He's got yeah. his primetime show, and then he's got the radio show for three hours a day. And I'm always like, I don't know how anyone can talk that that much per day. Do you, how, how long are you on the air daily? Three hours for the radio show. And then I usually do an outkick show. And then a lot of times I'm doing also, I mean, by outkick show, I mean, me sitting for 30 minutes, basically talking to the camera, like I'm talking to the camera right now about additional issues. So I usually finish my radio show at three Eastern, immediately flip over to where I'm sitting right now. You can kind of see the backdrop. I just finished this a little bit ago, do 30 minutes there. And then oftentimes during the course of the day, I'm doing, you know, multiple interviews, everything else publicly. So, yeah, I would say I easily average four hours a day plus of media as well. And that's, that's not, I do a lot of Fox News hits. Right? right. So I was on Fox and Friends this morning. 
I'm traveling to New York. I'll do a live Hannity show on Friday. So I, I pretty much do Fox News daily, right? Uh, in addition to being on the road for the Fox College football pregame show, big noon kickoff, um, uh, all throughout the fall uh, and everything else that's going on. So, is that, yeah. Fox. Is that something that you have to like train to be able to do? Or are people just like yourself, just born with this natural ability to talk for hours and hours on end every day? I, it's a funny question because my wife sometimes will come up because I've got the home radio studio and I talk on the radio. Like you can see me moving my hands if people are watching on video as if there is some audience that is watching me. Yet I'm sitting in a completely empty room talking to a microphone by myself. So I do think it's probably a unique talent. Uh, but my wife says that it's why I've never needed therapy because I sit down and talk for three hours plus every day, tell everybody exactly what I think. And when I am done, like the, the weight on my shoulders is virtually non-existent, right? So I'm like, I told everybody exactly what I think uh, on every subject under the sun. And now I'm going to go hopefully beat my kids in horse and basketball. But I don't feel like I, I feel that the number one thing that people come up to me now, you asked about the shift from sports talk radio to uh, to, to taking over uh, the rush time slot with Buck Sexton. People never came up to me before I took that show and said, thank you. They might say, I loved your opinion on Game of Thrones or man, you won me a lot of money on the Iron Bowl this year, or conversely, you lost me a lot of money on Ohio State and, and Michigan, and they want to talk about subjects. But what people who listen to the radio show now come up and say overwhelmingly is thank you. And it makes me, and I'm not a humble guy, but it, but it, <laughs> clearly, but it makes me like take a pause for a moment because I don't underrate the privilege that I have, which I think so few people in America feel that they have because if you've got two or three kids right now and you're making $70,000 a year and you are grinding away and you have strong opinions, but you feel like you have to zip your lips in order to ensure that you can pay your mortgage and you can hope to get your kid into college and they don't feel like they can say what they think. And I always say when I'm speaking out in public, like, hey, raise your hand if you've written a Facebook message, a Twitter message, an Instagram message, and deleted it because you're afraid of what people are going to think if they see it. Almost every hand in the whole room goes up. And so I think what people respond to and what I certainly understand is an incredible privilege is I get to say exactly what I think every single day. And I think the reason why people respond to me over the last 20 years is because they may not agree or disagree but they respect that I'm saying exactly what I think. And I mentioned my wife earlier. She didn't listen to my shows for years because she would always say, you can't say that on the radio. Like whatever I'm saying, sitting at the counter with her or out with friends at a restaurant or a bar, I say on the radio, there's almost no difference between Clay Travis in front of the mic and Clay Travis sitting at the bar having a beer and I think people innately understand that. So uh, that's the biggest difference is just people say, thank you. Nobody ever thanked me for what I thought about who was going to win the Super Bowl. Um, our audience now is incredibly uh, grateful to be able to hear people that I think uh, that they agree with. I'll add one more thing on that. I think there's a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who are fearful about the direction the country was going. And the fact that Buck and I are relatively young guys in our 40s 
it makes them feel better because Rush was 70 and that audience had aged with him. They were incredibly loyal to him. They've been listening for 30 plus years. But if you were the same age as Rush, you're looking around in the country and you're like, the whole place is going to hell, whether you agree with it or not. And you're worried that after you're gone, what is it going to be like for your grandkids? What are your kids going to be dealing with? And I think they like that we're younger guys and theoretically are going to be out there fighting battles for the next 40 or 50 years, I hope, about America. Since we're talking honestly about politics here, I, I have a, a, a question for you I want to get an answer on. You you have a very unique relationship, I would say, to, to politics. You voted Democrat or independent all of yeah. your life, if I'm not mistaken, until 2020 when you voted for Trump, which I think is an interesting turn. You don't always hear that much of people starting to vote for Trump in 2020. My question is, and I want you to be really honest with me here, did you regret voting for Trump after his presidency ended in the January 6th riot? No, I wish I could have voted for Trump 10 times in 2020. <laughs> really? I, I think Joe Biden's a disaster. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that's fascinating, you know, Ronald Reagan said he didn't leave the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party left him. Uh, I'm writing a new book that's going to be out in September. And um, that new book, uh, somebody sent me several years ago. They tracked down. I went to George Washington University for undergrad. Uh, and I believe the first thing I ever had published, which is funny, and it's in this, this new book that I'm writing, I wrote a letter to the editor as a freshman at George Washington University. There was a controversy on campus, which sounds like it could happen today, over an administrator who used the phrase rule of thumb. And uh, it was like, how dare this you know, white male administrator use the phrase rule of thumb, which is derived according to the, the, the woman who had, you know, the protest that had, had blown up on campus behind the idea, not, you know, that you could beat a woman as long as the uh, ruler was not wider than your thumb, right? Like that was like old English law or something, according to her, right? Clearly does not mean that today, right? And clearly was not being used by an administrator at George Washington University to endorse in any way the beating of women. So I wrote a piece uh, defending, you know, like the marketplace of ideas and the First Amendment saying, like, this is lunacy. And I went back and I read it and I was like, wow, 18-year-old Clay Travis sounds a lot 25 years later like 43-year-old Clay Travis. And it's interesting, 18-year-old Clay Travis would have been considered a, uh, a, a Democrat because the First Amendment and the marketplace of ideas was something that was widely embraced by Democrats. Remember, post 9-11, Bill Maher got fired for his opinion on terrorists, right? Like, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, whatever you think about the 9-11, you know, uh, uh, terrorists, they weren't cowards. And it was such a huge controversy, they fired him off ABC. Um, I'm anti-cancel culture. I don't, like Don Lemon, I think, was an idiot for what he said about uh, women in their prime. But I don't think that Don Lemon should get fired. You know, I went on CNN and they banned me because I said I believed in the First Amendment and boobs uh, because <laughs> I remember that. Well, you remember that blow up. But I was defending Jamel Hill, even though she had called Donald Trump a white supremacist. I think she's entitled to say that. I think we should all say exactly what we think and we should argue about who's right. And that's basically the entire concept of the marketplace of ideas. So. Uh, you know, if you if you Elon uh, shared this meme, which has become very popular. But, you know, 20 years ago, I was a little bit left of center. Right. And now it's like, oh, my God, you're a far right wing ideologue. And I just look around and I'm like, I still believe almost the exact same thing I do. 
the Democrat Party has moved so far left that now I'm like, you know, China sucks. I believe in the First Amendment. Uh, you know, I think that you should have the ability to decide whether or not you get a COVID shot. I think wearing masks was stupid. All of those things firmly align me with the Republican Party. So, no, I wish I could vote for Trump 10 times. Um, and uh, I think the 2024 election battle is going to be interesting. I'm not sure who I'm going to end up supporting, but I wish I had voted for Trump in 2016 instead of voting for the libertarian candidate, uh, because I think I got that one wrong more than I got 2020 wrong. Let me reframe the question to look forward then to 2024, because I understand the the objection to Biden and his presidency so far. But looking forward to 2024, we have now have a you're not going to have a choice between Trump and, and a bunch of other Republican candidates. There's going to be probably 20 running in that <laughs> in that campaign. Given, and I hate to drill down on this, but I think it's really important. It's sort of been like whitewashed and forgotten about. Given the events of January 6th, where a bunch of Trump supporters beat the shit out of police because they thought the election was stolen, does that make you think, okay, maybe I won't support Trump? Maybe I'll choose one of these other viable alternatives like DeSantis? It has no impact on who I'll support because if you go back and look at my tweets on January 6th, I had the exact same opinion on January 6th as I did the riots throughout the whole summer of 2020. Again, First Amendment absolutist, First Amendment and boobs, hello, CNN, you banned me for this, right? But I believe you have the right to protest anything. I support you know, wholeheartedly your ability to go out into the street. As soon as you riot, as soon as you loot, as soon as you trespass, I think you should be arrested and prosecuted. So regardless of what your political motivations are. So as January 6th was happening, uh, I was saying, this is awful. These people need to be prosecuted. Um, now, I don't know that they need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law like they are now. I think we should prosecute everybody, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, protesters. Look, I think people should be able to protest Supreme Court decisions. That doesn't mean I think you should be able to show up outside of Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh's house and you know chant in the streets. I think you should be, uh, you know, there's time and place for all of that. Uh, but I believe, and I've said this publicly for a long time, there was so much um, heat and tension surrounding the 2020 race. Everybody forgets they boarded up basically every window in every major city in America, it felt like. They weren't doing that if Biden won. They were doing that because there was fear that Trump might win, and then there might be more rioting and looting. So I actually have, I don't know if anybody else has shared this opinion. I've been saying it for years. I think Democrats would have done their own version of January 6th if Trump had won a close election, right? If he had, and I say it all the time, 20,000 votes different based on the tallies that we have here in Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, and Trump wins in a tied House of Representatives, 269, 269. And I think that Democrats would have rioted all over the country if that had happened. So I were just in this tempestuous boiling point um, where everybody was angry, and I, I think that uh, all rioting, all protesting was wrong. But if my choice is Trump in 24 against Joe Biden in 2020, I mean, 24, like a redo, I would gladly vote for Trump all over again in 24. Are you, is it safe to say you're, when it just comes to the Republican candidates, are you keeping your powder dry on selecting between well, them? I said today on the show that I would love alongside of Buck Sexton to potentially do our own debate. Our show is so big at this point. If there's, you know, 10 top candidates, we've had them all on the show, right? We had Nikki Haley last week. We had Vivek Ramaswamy. We've had DeSantis on. We've had Trump on. I think all of them are, you know, 
and certainly their staffs, fans of our show in general. I want to see how the uh, how the campaign plays out. Um, I want to see whether Trump can regain the momentum that he had in 16. I want to see how DeSantis is going to do leaving Florida and getting out sort of in the larger media ecosystem and also outside of sort of the bubble of Florida. I think he's going to do well. I don't know. Um, I like Vivek. Uh, we had Nikki Haley on. I thought she was impressive. So yeah, I want to see. I want to see what the, when the bullets start flying, proverbially speaking, in uh, in Iowa and in New Hampshire and in South Carolina, those first three primaries. I want to see how these guys and girls do on their feet. And I want to see how they do uh, in the debates and the campaign trail. So I, yeah, I'm not going to endorse somebody. What I will do is, and I don't even know what the date of this, when the Tennessee primary is here, uh, which is where I live in Tennessee, I always tell people as honestly as I can, hey, this is the choice that I've made. So when the Tennessee primary arrives, presuming that there's still a major battleground going on, I'm not going to lie to people and try to hide between the choice that I'm making. I'll come out and say, I voted for X and here's why. But I'm not trying. I'm not a big person of the belief. Our audience is so big. Um, I think it's disrespectful of people to say, hey, I'm voting this way and you should as well in a primary. I'll tell you what I'm doing and I'll tell you the reasons why I did it. But you're intelligent. You make your own choice. If you're listening to some random guy on the radio and you make the same choice because of him, I think you need to think long. Uh, about your own choice than you do just, you know, rubber stamping, whatever I would say. DeSantis, you've interviewed him, you followed him. Is he likable? There seems something, I know he, I know he's beloved by Republicans and beloved by, by conservative media, but there seems something prickly and a little odd about him. Do you think that's going to hurt him in a, in a primary? So DeSantis came as close, I think, as any governor in the country to doing what I would have done during COVID. And so let me take a step back and just kind of give you a preview of uh, of what's in my book. I made a conscious decision in like April and May that college football had to be played in 2020. And I was going to fight for it with every ounce of my ability. So we had basically every red state governor on my sports talk radio show. Right, whether it's DeSantis, whether it was Brian Kemp, whether it was my home state governor Bill Lee, uh, whether it was uh, a Texas governor uh, a- at the time, who's also a Vanderbilt law grad, by the way, uh, which is uh, maybe an endorsement for Vanderbilt law. If you hate us, it's like the worst thing ever, right? But um, but I think we had Kevin Stitt from Oklahoma, everybody on, right? And I wanted those guys on to say that college football had to be played because I knew so many kids out there. We're going to uh, be able to go and play high school sports only if in these states, for people who don't understand it, like if the University of Tennessee had not played in the SEC, tons of high school kids in Tennessee wouldn't have gotten to play football. And I come to the world from a sports perspective. You know this. There's lots of knuckleheads out there. You may well remember it from when you were in high school. The only reason a lot of boys graduate is because they love sports, right? And it may take a while for that light bulb to go off. You love basketball, you love football, you love soccer, whatever it might be. You'll stay eligible and keep going to school so you can play that sport. And I knew we would lose millions of kids out there. And unfortunately, I think we did. But in particular, in my region, so many people, sports is the heartbeat of their lives, especially young kids. And uh, they need that father figure, the coaching and everything else that comes with it during adolescence. I made a conscious decision to go as hard for that. That's the thing I'm most proud about in my career. And what I will say is 
DeSantis nailed it, right? I mean, schools are going to be open. We're not only going to be open. Every kid is playing sports. And so the personal politics aspect, I understand why it's important. I think a lot of people are just looking for competence, right? And ultimately, to me, the job of the president is to be the decider in chief. They bring you the most challenging question that has risen all the way up, and you have two different people briefing you on super difficult questions, and then you are the decider. I trust Ron DeSantis's decision-making. Um, now, I think DeSantis, like we had him on the show recently, and all he uh, was talking about was his baseball card. You know, he played baseball at Yale. Um, and he was talking about collecting baseball cards as a kid. And people were like, that was the most amazing interview I've ever heard because there's a desperate demand for normalcy in this country. And I think a lot of people get down in the weeds of, hey, here's what I think about the age of Social Security and what percentage growth we need to have in, in you know defense spending and all this stuff. And really what they want to hear is, hey, tell me about a sporting event that made you so mad, right? Your team lost and you were so mad and maybe you cursed. You know, I shared, I got kicked out of a Little League baseball game. I was talking earlier about how I have no filter. Uh, it's an awful call, and I just reacted to it. But I think people respond to authenticity. And the one thing I will say about Trump, I think people vastly underrate how good Trump is in a crowd, right? Like uh, at, at giving shout outs, at, uh, at just the, even though he's not a professional po politician, knowing how to make people who support him feel good. And I think that is an innate skill that he has. I mean, I was just watching before we came on, he was in East Palestine, Ohio today, and they did an unscheduled stop at the McDonald's. And Trump went in and made an order at the McDonald's and the whole place is coming undone. It's like the greatest moment of their life. Trump gets that kind of innate connection with people. And I don't think he gets credit for it. And that's why I think when you were asking earlier, hey, when you're going on the road in Iowa, you got to talk about the Iowa, Iowa State football game, right? You got to connect with people. When you're up in New Hampshire, you got to talk about the New England Patriots and whether they're going to have any success in a post Brady era. How many more years is Belichick going to coach? That's what people in diners want to talk about. That's what people in Dunkin' Donuts want to talk about, right? And so I think those small states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, people get a sense for how real you are because you can't fake walking into a diner and just talking as a natural human, one American to another. And so that's really what I kind of want to see on this campaign trail. You can get a sense of it from a radio interview. Like, I think I can talk to somebody for 15 minutes and be like, oh, that person will be good or not. A lot of these people are so scripted. What happens when you get knocked off script? And that's what I kind of love. And that's what I want to see coming forward in the campaign. Right. It's so interesting to, to see where how far Trump has come in that regard, because I, I grew up in New York City and throughout the, the decades of the Trump era, when you're when you're growing up in New York before he ran for politics, he was like this sort of clownish real estate guy who then went into reality TV. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that being from reality TV taught him how to sell an idea to people. And I, yes, I think that's true. I think the thing that people miss about Trump, too, is he is an innately gifted reader of crowds, no matter how big or small the crowd is. And I think a lot of times people miss what's going on when he's out on the road for those big rallies. 
he is judging the reaction of the crowd, almost like a comedian who is refining his, you know, you, you hear before somebody does a big Netflix speech uh, a special or before somebody does a big sort of signature event, they go out to all these small comedy clubs and they test out jokes, right? And they tweak them and they find out, oh, if I said this sentence in this order, it works way better. And so I think he is just uniquely skilled at mirroring back what he is seeing from the audience, like an incredibly talented uh, comedian would be. He has an innate needle that registers really well. And I think that's why he struggles sometimes when he stays behind the walls at Mar-a-Lago compared to when he gets out on the road in, quote unquote, the real world and interacts. I think his instincts are much better when he's outside of sort of that gilded circle of Mar-a-Lago. You have done a lot of coverage of COVID, you mentioned it, and you've had comments that have gotten pushback. You run afoul of fact checkers sometimes. At Mediate, we, we fact checked you recently on a, on a claim you made that vaccines were worthless. Do you, I don't want to get into like a debate about the science of this or anything, but do you ever reckon with fact checks or criticism like that and change your views accordingly? I feel like too many people in media today just sort of ignore the other side because it's easy to just speak to an audience. Do you ever find yourself saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to reckon with this fact check. I'm going to see if I agree with it. I'm going to change my positions if I do. No, I mean, look, here's the truth. Um, by the time I share an opinion in public, I have, there's the same question, you know, I, I started with when I said, hey, how much time do you spend prepping? The answer is all the time, right? Because uh, Hemingway has a great quote, right? And, and I think it's true for much of life. He says, you know, great writing is like an iceberg. Like you see the very top of the iceberg, but you don't see the support structure that um, that supports that uh, that great writing, right? Um, and so what I would say in general is, and, and this is a sports analogy that I've used that I also have translated into the Clay and Buck show. Um, I believe that an opinion is only as strong as the facts upon which it is based, right? And so I want to make sure that I get all my facts correct. Um, you know, what's interesting about so fact checkers is the New York Times today had a piece saying basically masks didn't work, right? It's opinion piece on their editorial page. And it cites all this data that I've been citing for a long time. Well, until that was in sort of the common parlance, you could fact check me and say, oh, you're misinforming people on this, right? And so, um, you know, for COVID, for instance, I said, hey, if you're over 75 years old, this is for years now, my parents are over 75, based on the early data out there, I think you should get the COVID shot. I've had COVID twice. I've been talking about natural immunity for years. Now a study comes out and continues to come out, right? That says natural immunity is just as good as the uh, COVID shot, right? Um, in terms of protection. Um, I didn't get the COVID shot for my young kids. So I try to be as honest about my choices. In my opinion, if you're under the age of 50, Based on all the data, it does not make sense to get the COVID shot. You probably already had COVID. If you're a child, it certainly doesn't make sense. People can agree or disagree with that, right? But to me, the foundation of my knowledge is substantial enough that I'm not concerned. Now, I think everybody about a fact check, I think everybody in America should do better at going and being willing to consider their opinions and adjust them if the facts change. And let me go to that point earlier. 
If I, and this is what I think is the biggest problem in media today. If I say to you, I don't think Patrick Mahomes is going to win the Super Bowl in this upcoming season, right? This new 2023 season. You might agree or disagree. You could be like, Kansas City Chiefs, lack of uh, depth at wide receivers, going to catch up with them. They still haven't got a proven running back necessarily. Defense is aging. You can agree or disagree with that claim. But if I said to you, hey, I don't think Patrick Mahomes is going to win a Super Bowl because he's never gotten to a Super Bowl and won one before, you could agree with my opinion, but trust it less because my facts are wrong. It seems to me that in this era in which we live now, a lot of people go straight to the opinion and they don't care about the foundation of the argument underneath it as to whether or not they agree. And there's a big issue with facts versus opinion in general. But to me, you should trust me less if I tell you the reason I don't think Patrick Mahomes is going to win a Super Bowl is because he's never won one before. And you go back and you say, actually, Clay, he's won two. You might agree that he's not going to win in 2023, but you should trust me less than you would um, even if you agree with my opinion because my facts were wrong. We don't get enough of that, I don't think, today. Clay Travis, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you having me. You guys actually, uh, I have to be honest, are pretty fair, right? In the larger universe uh, of the uh, of, of the media ecosystem, uh, I have found your site to do a really good job of being very fair. So that's why I was happy to come on with you. I appreciate the time. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Clay. Have a good day. Appreciate y'all. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Clay Travis on Mediaite.com.